This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this BMJ Best Practice podcast on gastroesophageal reflux disease, or GORD. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm Clinical Director at BMJ. GORD is a common condition that can affect between 10 to 30% of people in developed countries. All age groups can be affected, and there can be a range of complications, from hemorrhage to stricture to Barrett's esophagus. So it's important we get the diagnosis and management of this condition right. To give us more details about this problem and what we can do about it, we have on the line Dr. Andres Carrion, Associate Professor of Clinical Medicine at the Division of Digestive Health and Liver Diseases in University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. And importantly, Andres is author of our BMJ Best Practice topic on this condition. So Andres, you're welcome. Let's start off by asking, what exactly is GORD? Well, thank you for the invitation, Kieran. GERD is one of our most common clinical problems that we face in practice. And this is, you know, something that affects the general population to a large extent, as you uh, accurately described. The main um, characteristics of GERD uh, basically describe what the condition is. And the clinical symptoms that characterize GERD are heartburn and food regurgitation. Now, some degree of um, heartburn or regurgitation um, can occur under physiological conditions, but when it starts to occur more than two to three times a week, it may be considered pathologic. And uh, again, the physiologic um, effect, uh, for example, of exercise may create some um, conditions that are favorable for um, reflux of the gastric contents into the esophagus. But when this uh, becomes more bothersome or problematic, um, you know, particularly uh, with alarm features, that's usually when we label it as gastroesophageal um, reflux disease. And obviously the, the terminology there uh, highlights that there is a problem by uh, connoting that there's a disease associated to the, to the, the symptoms. Okay, fantastic. Thank you. How do you make the diagnosis? So the diagnosis is clinical, um, mainly. Um, When we interview patients, we definitely have to try to uh, sort out uh, upper GI symptoms because a lot of times um, there, uh, there may be confusion or there can be more than one problem going on at the same time. As I mentioned before, uh, the two, um, key symptoms for reflux are heartburn or pyrosis um, and food regurgitation. So those should be two key clinical questions um, when uh, the the provider is seeing a patient. uh, Ask specifically what the patient feels and try to discern um, between chest pain, dysphagia, or dynophagia, heartburn, regurgitation, and uh, obviously try to uh, figure out if there's any additional problem, potentially dyspepsia, epigastric pain, that could be actually leading to a different diagnosis. Once the diagnosis is suspected on clinical grounds, um, there may be or may not be an indication to do uh, more um, specialized testing. Um, Nowadays, 
um, upper endoscopy um, basically plays the major role for the diagnosis. Back in the day, we used uh, fluoroscopic examinations uh, such as barometer either single or double contrast, but those have fallen out of favor um, because of the widespread availability of uh, direct evaluation with upper endoscopy. Okay, thank you. And does everybody need upper endoscopy or is it kind of certain patients? So that's one of the key questions in the management of patients with um, reflux disease. And the short answer is no, not everyone needs an endoscopy. It's not cost-effective. It's not evidence-based just to do an endoscopy on every single person that comes uh, with heartburn and or regurgitation. We have to maximize the yield and obviously the cost effectiveness of that specific test. And as we all know, uh, endoscopy carries a significant economic burden, uh, not just because of the cost of the procedure, but because we typically use sedation and the patient may lose a day of work. Uh, plus, there may be a need for someone to come with a patient. So you're talking about two people actually missing work one day. So the way to figure out uh, which patients may benefit the most from an endoscopic evaluation is to try to use what's called alarm features or alarm uh, signs. Or, For example, if someone with reflux disease um, complaints of dysphagia, difficulty swallowing, that should be an indication to do a more thorough evaluation with endoscopic exams. Um, similarly, if someone starts losing weight uh, unintentionally and there's no obvious explanation uh, for that, that should be considered potentially an alarm feature. And obviously, we're concerned about complications related to gastroesophageal reflux disease and particularly about cancer. So weight loss plays an important role in discerning which patients should be um, examined um, with endoscopy or not. Age also is an important factor. Um, if we talk about um, younger patients, uh, the likelihood of a 20 or 30-year-old patient developing esophageal adenocarcinoma from chronic gastroesophageal reflux disease is actually exceedingly low. But if we jump to, let's say, the 70 or 80-year-old um, person, the likelihood of having um, prolonged exposure to reflux in the distal esophagus and creating a high-risk situation for esophageal adenocarcinoma raises significantly. So we have age um, as another main variable. And then one of the, 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 the important ones is also anemia. Uh, if the person has iron deficiency anemia that cannot be explained um, and uh, for example, has undergone a colonoscopy. It's not a, a, a woman on uh, fertile age that's having menometrorrhagia. There's no clear evidence where that anemia could be coming. That should be put in context and evaluation must be um, indicated for that particular person. Okay, thank you. That's, that's really helpful. What would you say are the main pitfalls in diagnosis? I think the, the biggest problem is that most patients um, cannot accurately describe the symptoms of GERD, um, and clinicians don't have probably the, the time or the expertise um, to try to sort out between GERD, dyspepsia, 
and abdominal pain. Now, upper GI symptoms in general could be um, very confusing um, to the clinician. And patients also cannot discern very well between one symptom or the other. So a lot of times what happens is the patient comes in complaining of reflux, but after a detailed interview, we figure out that there's not much reflux present, but rather epigastric pain or dyspepsia. Um, similarly, the patient may come to the office complaining of, of dyspepsia, and in reality, what he or she means is that th th there is food regurgitation or heartburn um, occurring postprandially. So it's essential to spend some extra minutes trying to really pinpoint what the main symptoms are and really explain to patients what we mean by heartburn because, you know, the term heartburn is uh, very familiar to us in clinical practice, but it may not be so familiar for patients. Um, so we have to, to really do our best to try to uh, convey um, what this um, symptom means. Similarly, food regurgitation, people may not understand completely what we mean if we ask them, do you have food regurgitation? We have to really describe the symptom to them. And um, one more uh, thing is dysphagia. It, it's easy for us to ask, do you have dysphagia? And patients may not have any idea what we're talking about. So we have to really use uh, simple terminology, descriptors um, for what we're trying to, to ask them. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. That, that's really, really helpful, very clear. Let's move on from diagnosis to management. What's the mainstay of management of gastroesophageal reflux? So the mainstay of management is really acid suppressive therapy. Now, because we have pharmacological options, we should not forget about lifestyle modifications and, you know, what I call common sense recommendations. Um, it's sort of like a 21st century problem that we all try to eat as fast as possible, as much as possible, and then get to bed or go watch TV in the couch, um, you know, do all the things that probably 50 or 100 years ago were completely contraindicated by common sense laws. Um, so I think a combination of pharmacotherapy with lifestyle modifications really maximizes the therapeutic yield in this condition. Now, pharmacotherapy has um, obviously been dominated over the past few decades by the proton pump inhibitors, which are some of the most effective drugs out there um, for what they're designed to do. They really suppress the gastric pH um, effectively. On, in, in very, very few conditions, this will not be achieved, and those are really uh, very rare cases in clinical practice. So patients that have increased acid exposure in the esophagus will certainly benefit from suppression of the acid. Now, a common pitfall in clinical practice is starting pharmacotherapy and not having a clear end uh, date or a time frame for the treatment. Patients may get started on treatment and go on chronic, sometimes lifelong therapy. So at least my approach is to set up some expectations during the initial visit uh, when we're starting pharmacotherapy that this is going to be um, a, a finite therapy, at least 
for once or twice, um, and we need to try to get the patients off medications. Um, after the medications are stopped or the treatment is completed, then lifestyle modifications will play the most important role in trying to prevent the problem from occurring again. And we also have to be realistic and let patients know that it may happen again, let's say after three or six months um, of stopping medications, and we may need to retreat again. Um, but lifestyle modifications are key, and those, uh, I believe, are not usually um, addressed uh, in enough detail. And what I mean by lifestyle modifications is uh, what I was alluding a few minutes ago, you know, um, giving enough time for digestion to occur uh, before um, going into supine position. So we usually recommend three hours before going to bed. There should not be any meals or a late night snack should be very small, high protein, low fat. Elevation of the head of the bed can be a very important intervention. Um, Interestingly, not many people know about wedge pillows, which is a cheap and easy intervention. You know, they're widely available um, online and uh, it's definitely worth um, using them. Sleeping on the left side may have some beneficial effects. Um, and then, um, you know, uh, the, the meals should be normal size portions um, and people should try to eat um, um, you know, at a good pace, not um, fast and, uh, and and avoid carbonated beverages and, and other substances that can um, decrease the pressure of the lower esophageal sphincters, such as caffeine, caffeine or peppermint. Okay, thank you. And uh, smoking? Smoking is another important um, risk factor, and uh, not just for GERD, but also importantly for cancer. So uh, when we talk about GERD, most people, um, you know, they're bothered by the day-to-day -day symptoms, but a, a, a good proportion of them are actually truly afraid of developing esophageal cancer um, because of the ominous prognosis um, that that carries. So smoking is something that I tried um, to address with every single patient. Smoking cessation should be important. And also uh, weight management. Weight is another important variable um, that is very much linked to reflux and may also affect uh, the incidence of esophageal adenocarcinoma. Thank you. And a more difficult question. What about vaping? So that's a good question, and I don't have any um, evidence um, to to support, uh, you know, any uh, worse outcomes uh, related to vaping. Okay, yeah, no, that's that, that that's that's fine. Thank you. Um, and when you say that treatment should be finite, um, uh, for an average patient, how long should your initial course of treatment be or, or the, the, the full course of treatment be with a PPI? So the recommendation is to, to start acid suppressive medication and continue it for eight weeks. Um, I may sometimes in, in very mild cases uh, cut it a little bit shorter, maybe uh, six weeks, uh, but something on those lines, six to eight weeks should be the initial um, treatment course. And after that, um, there's no uh, formal recommendation on how to stop the medicine, but uh, 
uh, a tapered approach uh, may be better than stopping it um, right at the end of the eight weeks. And by tapered, I mean reduction of the dose or going every other day, because there are some data suggesting that um, even in healthy individuals, uh, acid suppression uh, with medications uh, may lead to a sort of a rebound effect after stopping. So sometimes this is actually way more helpful um, in subsequent courses of treatment, let's say in the second or third treatment course in, in, in a period of two years, the person claims that you know the treatment gives complete relief, but after treatment starts feeling uh, the symptoms back again uh, quite rapidly. Um, a taper uh, of the medication may be um, a good, um, a good practice okay thank you and what would you say for a patient who is just symptoms are resistant to medical therapy where PPI just doesn't help just doesn't work lifestyle modification doesn't work either they continue to get symptoms so that's obviously a big part of our population, especially of the patients that make it to the gastroenterologists. Uh, um, usually, um, we recommend uh, trying to exclude alternative diagnosis. And in this category, eosinophilic esophagitis is one of the important um, uh, diagnosis that must be excluded. Um, now, there is a type of uh, esophageal eosinophilia that responds well to acid suppressive medication, but as we know, there is the true allergic uh, type of condition that may actually require some topical immunosuppression or avoidance of certain allergens. So that is something that must be excluded. And typically an upper endoscopy with esophageal biopsies uh, will give enough information to either uh, diagnose or exclude this condition. Uh, the other part of the problem is trying to figure out which patients actually have um, true increased acid exposure in the esophagus um, because, um, as we all know, some patients may have a, what's called a hypersensitive esophagus and um, they may actually be um, perceiving symptoms way more aggressively than what the actual pH in the esophagus could be. And in those particular cases, a pH impedance monitor can actually give extremely useful information especially to make decisions with regards to more aggressive therapies such as um, anti-reflux procedures or anti-reflux surgery. So a pH impedance testing also has the advantage of doing what's called a symptom correlation um, and that way the patient will hit a button the minute that he or she experiences uh, bothersome reflux symptoms and the computer will give us a detailed um, information about what's going on in the esophagus at that exact point in time. And um, lastly, manometry can also be a very important tool in excluding motility disorders that could be confused by, uh, by reflux. So for example, achalasia, as we all know, it's a it's an problem related to the lower esophageal sphincter that becomes spastic and does not want to open. And the body of the esophagus that typically has no peristalsis or abnormal peristalsis. So sometimes the problem in, in achalasia is reflux from the distal esophagus back into the proximal esophagus or even the mouth. And the patient confuses those symptoms as if they were 
from the stomach going into the esophagus. So manometry and pH impedance will be two more advanced techniques that can help um, for the evaluation of patients that are unresponsive or poorly responder to the acid suppressive medications. Okay, thank you. And what patients might you refer on for a procedure? So this is a very good question. Um, nowadays, um, there are a few options uh, for anti-reflux procedures, uh, mainly laparoscopic fundoplication, which has stood the test of time and is still the gold standard procedure for um, anti-reflux um, surgery or interventions. Um, and we do have the transoral incisionless fundoplication, which is also a relatively established um, test nowadays. We have additional minimally invasive techniques, such as the anti-reflux mucosal ablation, um, for example, that's gaining some traction on uh, preliminary data, and it's very simple. Um, so basically what, um, what we should keep in mind is that there are alternatives to long-term pharmacotherapy. And this may actually improve the quality of life dramatically. And when I discuss these options with patients, I'm very clear that the two components of reflux, um, heartburn and food regurgitation, are addressed differently. For example, pharmacotherapy essentially takes care of the heartburn only. The food regurgitation or the non-acidic uh, reflux will continue to occur even in the setting of, um, of a proton pump inhibitor that's working adequately. When we talk about surgical interventions or um, endoscopic interventions, we're talking about um, improving the, um, the barrier at the lower esophageal sphincter, which could effectively address um, both parts of the problem, including the food regurgitation. So we have to be sort of um, aggressive in, uh, in discerning what's bothering the patient more and what's impacting quality of life um, adversely. So we can decide which intervention uh, is the most appropriate. Now in this lines, um, and it's very pertinent to current practice, is um, obesity and bariatric surgery because we see a, a good proportion of patients that undergo sleeve gastrectomies with a pre-existing hiatal hernia and reflux symptoms. And it's just asking for a lot of trouble postoperatively. And some of those patients may require reoperation and conversion to a Roux-en-Y gastric bypass eventually to control the reflux symptoms. So um, in essence, we have to think about anti-reflux procedures as a therapeutic option, but we have to try to figure out which one is the best for the individual patient. And usually that decision, uh, it's a joint decision between the patient and the clinician, basically on, um, uh, on the grounds of uh, improvement of quality of life. Okay, thank you. Um, last question which is a question about questions, really. What other questions have you been asked about this illness that I haven't asked you so far? What have we missed in our discussion so far? 
So I think a couple of important things, uh, and we see this more often, is extra esophageal um, symptoms, extra esophageal pathology related uh, to reflux. Um, we're getting a lot more referrals nowadays from pulmonary um, because of um, lung disease that's related to chronic acid reflux disease. And I think our colleagues in, in pulmonary are becoming a little bit more aggressive in referring and trying to understand um, the, the, the aggressive therapeutic options, uh, particularly anti-reflux interventions, uh, in order to minimize lung damage. So again, patients that have extra esophageal symptoms um, that are not explained by a primary lung disease should be considered uh, potential um, uh, candidates for um, this type of, uh, of treatments. The other one is the long-term side effects of uh, acid-suppressive medications, which is a very hot topic uh, in clinical practice. You know, patients are getting more and more information, and they're obviously hearing that some of these medications may have um, a long-term risk, and they want to try to, you know, get off the medicine or try something different. So I think it's our job to really uh, educate them um, on the first on the uh, on the finite nature of uh, of reflux treatment um, this is not something that we can live on uh, long-term double dose uh, proton pump inhibitor for 20 or 30 years this is something that needs to be addressed usually from the root and if um, we can pinpoint one or two things to the patient that could be uh, potentially uh, reversible there for example weight management, um, as you were asking, uh, smoking cessation or reduction of alcohol consumption, those could be important um, interventions that may get the patient off long-term treatment with proton pump inhibitors and thus reduce the, the long-term uh, risk for adverse reactions. Okay, thank you. Um, that's very clear. And just to come back to the first thing you mentioned, which is respiratory um, symptoms. What respiratory symptoms might patients complain of that could be caused by reflux? So essentially, when I start my review of systems in this type of patient, I start from the throat uh, uh, and, and I ask them very specifically, are you having any changes in your voice, particularly in the morning? Are you experiencing hoarseness or a sore throat? And a typical patient with reflux will most likely um, give a positive response there. After that, a uh, dry cough can be a very um, common sign. And obviously, if they're having any type of interstitial lung disease or pulmonary fibrosis that is unexplained, uh, we usually uh, refer them to pulmonary for a detailed evaluation. And if that comes back negative, um, that could be um, attributed uh, to reflux, especially if a pH impedance test uh, demonstrate significant uh, reflux into the proximal esophagus. Um, a little bit less likely is um, um, nasopharyngeal problems like sinusitis. Um, we don't see that often, um, but it could certainly happen. And similarly, otitis, um, it could happen, but we don't see it in adults um, very often. Okay, thank you. And I wonder, do those respiratory symptoms, if they're caused by reflux, do they respond to anti-reflux treatment? Will the respiratory symptoms sometimes go away as you get the reflux under control? So, yes. Um, so, 
the laryngeal symptoms are usually more um, irritation um, from the acidic uh, reflux contents. So those actually respond very quickly to acid suppressive medications. So the patient that has a um, horse voice in the morning in a week or two of acid suppressive medication may notice a dramatic improvement. Now, the pulmonary symptoms uh, tend to be a little bit more complicated because those are related to the reflux going actually into the lungs and the acid. So those may actually get some benefit from pH um, uh, being neutral, clo as close to neutral as possible, but they may require a, a sort of an anatomic barrier that's recreated in order to reduce the reflux of even non-acidic contents. So we're talking about more like the fundoplications um, type of therapy. Okay. Thank you very much, Andres. And thanks to you all for listening. We hope this has been helpful. And we hope you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice and have a look at the content on this and other relevant diseases. Thank you once again. <laughs>